0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the Checkdown Charlie's Podcast. I'm your host, Eric. As always, I'm here with my trusty companion, Theo. What's up, Theo?
1: Nothing. I'm seeing that you're looking like you're in the holiday mood with your Christmas sweater and all. Yeah, exactly. It's like, tis the season to get... Riggity, riggedy, wrecked, son.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's a Rick and Morty reference. We're dragging out the Christmas season as much as we can, especially this year, you know, it being a pandemic and everything. So figured I would keep the Christmas spirit going.
1: Yeah, Eric's in Scotland right now with his vino exactly. and his uh, Christmas sweater looking all cozy and such. Vacation mode. What can I say? <laughs> You're not the only one coming off of a holiday high. The last time we spoke, we were talking about the 2007 Giants, who had just won a Super Bowl against the undefeated regular season New England Patriots. We talked about how that is potentially the greatest upset of all time.
0: I would certainly say so, yeah.
1: This episode, I think we should move forward to uh, 2008, and basically the ensuing years after their Super Bowl victory. After that wondrous victory of 2007, the champion New York football Giants returned in 2008, and they still competed at a very high level. Obviously, the biggest of highs coming off the previous season. Mm-hmm. 2008 would arguably be the best Giants team fielded in the modern era. Especially in my lifetime, I'd say based on the level of talent and statistically, it was probably one of the more dominant teams that I've seen. Spared from the common uh, Super Bowl hangover, in 2008, they would finish 12-4 and and first in the NFC East. Unfortunately, they would not repeat winning a championship and they would lose the divisional playoffs to the Philadelphia Eagles. 2008 would actually be Coughlin's best regular season record and the only time in his Giants career where the team held the first seed in the playoffs, which is interesting, but sort of the profile Coughlin had throughout his tenure in New York where the team wasn't necessarily the best team each and every year but they always competed and always were able to squeeze into the playoffs with the exception of this 2008 season.
0: And I think that if you look at the Giants' sort of makeup as a team under Coughlin, they thrived in being the underdogs. And once mm-hmm. there were certain expectations of them to actually win and, and be dominant, even though they did finish 12 and 4, I mean, ultimately they, they came up short in the playoffs. You know, when you look at a 12 and 4 squad, they knew that they could win a Super Bowl, plus the young talent on their roster was flourishing.
1: This would also actually be the last season that the Giants would have 11 plus wins until 2016, which they would go 11 and 5 under the famous Ben McAdoo. 2008 also saw significant change to the roster. Michael Strait, as you had mentioned, had retired. Jeremy Shockey, who was one of the better weapons Eli had on his team, Mm -hmm. was traded to the New Orleans Saints. Mm -hmm. And then O.C. Yermanura also tore his ACL during the preseason, Mm -hmm. and unfortunately was not able to play that year. Despite those exits, they still had a high level of talent on the roster. The Giants fielded a combination of young, talented players, like Ahmaud Bradshaw and Steve Smith. Not the Panther Steve Smith, but another Steve Smith. Yes. And players like Justin Tuck and Brandon Jacobs in their prime. Two players that year actually rushed for 1,000 yards. So Brandon Jacobs had almost 1,100 yards, and likewise with running back Derek Ward. Mm-hmm. The previous year, there was sort of a dynamic duo in the running attack with Ahmaud Bradshaw and Brandon Jacobs. Called Thundering Lightning, and this year it got upgraded to Earth, Wind, and Fire because there was Derek Ward, in addition to Brandon Jacobs and Ahmad Bradshaw.
0: And you could clearly see where the team's offensive philosophy lied: where you know you're going to run the ball and have a rotation of running backs, a stable of running backs, a really tough offensive line, keeping control of the ball, and then on defense, obviously still having a ferocious pass rush. Regardless of having Osu Manure, obviously that hurt them, but the defense was still able to perform at a high level.
1: This was also the first time Eli Manning was viewed as a top-tier quarterback. The previous postseason, in which they went on that spectacular run, mm-hmm. he had thrown for six touchdowns and only one interception. So, like, clutch was an understatement at that point. Moving on to the season, by Week 13, the Giants were also 11-2. and They'd beaten both eventual Super Bowl contestants... In week eight, they had beaten the Steelers 21 to 14, and in week 12, they also handled Kurt Warner and his Cardinals 37 to 29. They were definitely the cream of the crop in 2008. Statistically, they were also on a tear. In weeks nine to 11, they had rushed for more than 200 or more yards in each game, and that was against the Cowboys, Eagles and Ravens, and if you're not familiar with those teams back then, they were all playoff contention teams. They were yeah. all you know, at the top of the tier. Things were, for the most part, looking good for the team, until an off-field mishap would shape the end of their season. And this was essentially the turning point of 2008.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: On November 28th, Giants all-star wide receiver Plaxico Burris would suffer a gunshot wound to the leg. Plaxico would Be suspended for the rest of the season due to conduct detrimental to the team. Without Plaxico, the Giants went one and three down the stretch. Offense would effectively be killed without him as the deep option. In the first 12 games, the Giants offense averaged twenty nine points per game. In the final four, it averaged eighteen points per game. Wow. Yeah, it was a shell shock to the Giants' season in 2008.
0: Yeah, well, no kidding. He caught the game-winning touchdown in the Super Bowl in the previous season. He had been acquired at a quite a hefty price tag for the team. So the particular night in question, Plaxico Burris was enjoying himself at a Latin Quarter nightclub in Manhattan in November of 2008, as you would mentioned, Theo. Presumably because of his status and clout in New York, the security guard, didn't bat an eye when Burris came into the club with a loaded gun. He was leaning against the bar when the security guard suggested that he and his friends go upstairs to get away from the crowd in the club. Burris agreed and followed the guard to go upstairs. On to Plaxico, there was an extra step that had eluded him in the dark and noisy club. Feeling his pistol slip from the waistband of his pants, Burris instinctively grabbed for the pistol so it wouldn't fall on the ground and make a scene. Unfortunately for the giant star receiver, he ended up squeezing the trigger inadvertently, sustaining a gunshot wound to his leg. Apparently the music was loud enough to deafen the sound of the shot, although he was able to see the gun firing through his jeans. Suddenly, he noticed blood coming from his leg and realized what he had done. Making matters worse for him, he did not have a license to carry a gun in the state of New York, Leading him to spend twenty months in prison for his offense.
1: What a crazy event! That seems like, you know, like you couldn't even write something that happens. I know, like that. I know, <laughs> it and it's like real life.
0: You go into the obvious question of like, why would you bring a gun to a club? Why would you not have it in the holster? Why would you not have a license to carry the gun? Any of those questions are valid questions. What I'm more curious about is, have you ever heard a gun being fired, Thea?
1: once or twice, but, like, in a not in, like, a confined environment. It was, like, out hunting in a village and stuff. Right.
0: They are really freaking loud when they go off. Louder than than you would think in the movies. Like, even when you put a silencer on a gun, you can still hear, you know, like, you still hear it. By no means is it like the James Bond kind of, you know, sound yeah. effect that you hear. So the fact that the music was loud enough so that he didn't hear a freaking gunshot in the club, that's impressive to me
1: to the sound system guy
0: <laughs> Yeah, exactly the dj must have been <laughs> spinning some real some He's real bangers in
1: the, in the mid-2000s <laughs> <or> the <last laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah exactly exactly ultimately burris shoots himself and he shoots his career in the leg basically at this point
1: on december 2nd of 2008 burris posted a bail of a hundred thousand
0: mm-hmm.
1: after he was placed on reserve non-football injury list Plaxico was no longer eligible for the playoffs. The Giants also tried to withhold Plaxico's $1 million signing bonus, but then arbitration ruled against them. So this pissed off Giants co-owner John Mara, and he would speak publicly about it. He would go on to say, to think that a player could carry a loaded gun into a nightclub, shoot himself, and miss the rest of the season, but get to keep his entire signing bonus, illustrates the serious flaws in the current system. The resentment was less towards the player and more towards the league as a whole and how they ruled against them. Other players would speak out about the incident. Justin Tuck would go on to say, we got 53 people on a football team and every year somebody goes down on every team. You look at all the championship teams previously and there were players that were hurt or whatever and that team found a way to rally the troops, figure it out and accomplish their goals. Obviously, Plaxico was a huge part of our success for the first 11 or 12 games. From his perspective, he has that sort of winning mentality. And he's really showing his leadership skills, I'd say, because Strahan's no longer in the picture. OC Yermanura's out with a torn ACL. So Mm -hmm. Tuck has really become the vocal leader on that Giants defense. For sure. And that's sort of the attitude you got to have at that point in time.
0: I would definitely agree with that. He's got a point in terms of guys go down every year and to show that or to say outwardly that the team's not really affected by Plaxico not being there shows the mental strength. But then clearly, as you'd mentioned, Plaxico's absence is going to have a pretty big impact on the team.
1: I'd say from a motivational standpoint, he's completely right. If you're focusing on the team as a whole, you can't just call it quits if one guy isn't in the picture. Mm-hmm. But from a tactical perspective, Chrisney would argue otherwise, because the Giants lineman would go on to mention publicly that he remembers talking to Eagle safety Brian Dawkins at the Pro Bowl. And Dawkins explained that Philadelphia's game plan had completely changed without plaxical bursts in the picture. It allowed them to consistently put an extra guy in the box to stop the run. The Giants that game in the playoffs in which they lost to the Eagles would only rush for 138 yards. And that's 20 yards below their season average and 81 less than they did earlier in the season when they beat the Eagles. Remember how I mentioned that from weeks 9 to 11, they were on like this statistical rushing tear? Right, 200 Uh, yards. 200 or more yards. One of those games was actually against the Eagles and they beat them and they just ran all over them. Mm-hmm. Chris Knee's a little bit resentful they go on to mention that he still doesn't even talk about this Tom Coughlin who happens to be his father-in-law right that's the thing like not only did they beat the Steelers and Cardinals that season but they also beat the conference runner-ups which were the Eagles and the Ravens so mm-hmm. the Ravens actually played the Steelers in the AFC championship game the Eagles also played the Cardinals mm-hmm. in the NFC championship game when they played those four teams Three out of those four matchups were actually played on the road. They've already demonstrated their mental toughness. Like you had mentioned, Plaxico serves jail time. Mm -hmm. He served nearly two years. And that's mainly because the mayor of New York at the time was pushing for a strict prosecution because Plaxico was a public figure and he violated the stringent gun laws of New York City. So he wanted to make an example of them, which isn't necessarily right but we won't go into that
0: right so that's for another podcast exactly
1: in any of the final five games for new york manning also didn't even reach 200 yards passing we could see also much more specific effect of plaxico's withdrawal from the team this is the other thing that that would kill me if i was a giants fan Mm -hmm. had they beaten the eagles they would have hosted the cardinals it would have been in the winter time in a frigid new york yeah so The likelihood of them going to the Super Bowl, had they beaten the Eagles, was very high, you know? Yeah. Cardinals are playing in a dome in the Southwest, not exposed to those conditions. It would have been a completely different game had they been in New York.
0: Plus, it would have been Kurt Warner returning to face his former team, albeit brief stint. That narrative would have been there, but hey, what can you do? I mean, it's all hypotheticals at this point, but you're right in terms of the potential that that team certainly had to make some noise again in the playoffs. So after 2008, the team wouldn't have enough gas in 2009, finishing with an 8-8 record on the outside looking into the playoff picture. 2010, on the other hand, saw the opening of MetLife Stadium, bringing an end to Old Giant Stadium. MetLife is also called the New Meadowlands Stadium. The Giants themselves were set for another good season after starting out six and two. However, week fifteen saw a pivotal matchup between the Giants and the Philadelphia Eagles, who were nine and four at the time. The Giants were controlling the majority of the game. They led twenty four to three at halftime, and a late Kevin Boss touchdown put them up ahead. with 8 minutes left to play in the final quarter. However, the Eagles got the big play that they desperately needed as Brent Selleck broke a tackle and scored a 65-yard touchdown to keep them alive. The Eagles were then able to recover an onside kick. The elusive Michael Vick was able to dodge many sacks on his way to making it a one-score game at that point. At 31-24, The Giants' offense is stopped, and they're forced to punt it away with three minutes left, giving the Eagles the ball to eventually tie the game thanks to a Jeremy Macklin touchdown. I think, uh, you know, anybody who's been a fan of the Giants can kind of tell where this is going, but we'll uh, we'll just get it over with. We'll rip this Band-Aid off, okay? So, with the score... (laughs) with the score tied the Giants squandered another opportunity to regain the lead giving the ball to their punter Matt Dodge with 14 seconds left in the game Tom Coughlin was very clearly telling him to punt the ball out of bounds so as not to give Deshaun Jackson the opportunity to touch the ball in spite of his coach's instructions Dodge punts a line drive down the middle of the field straight to Jackson, who bobbles the ball as it comes to him. Picking it back up off the ground, it gave enough time for a seam to open up in the middle of the Giants' punt coverage unit. The improbable touchdown gave the Eagles the lead, meaning that the Giants had squandered a 21-point lead in less than eight minutes of game time. I'll never forget Tom Coughlin's tomato-like face on the sideline, berating the punter for such a mistake. Poor guy. This became known... As the Miracle at the Meadowlands 2. <laughs> so, yeah. I remember specifically being very rattled watching this on TV and yeah. very specifically getting chirped by our friend Ben, who is an Eagles fan, and basically being chirped by anybody who had watched the game or heard about it at least because the Giants should not have lost that game. It was very oh. clearly like... They had control of the game. But when you think back to that Eagles offense with Michael Vick, Michael Vick being paired with Andy Reid turned out to be like a super explosive offense. So obviously if you give them a chance to get back in the game, they certainly will.
1: I know that they named it the Miracle at the Lands too because, you know, it was against the Eagles and it was another big upset in which they should have won the game. I'd say even though it's a very memorable occasion, we have the technology to re these highlights over and over again, I don't think it's as impactful to the organization as the initial Miracle at the Metal Lens. Like we had mentioned in previous episodes, that really changed the organization for the better, and this was just sort of like a garbage win that just pissed fans off more than anything else. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's more fun in the sense that you could just send the link to your Giants <laughs> friend. If you want to rally them, yeah. It was in November, right? It was one of those like yeah, later week 15. games even that like, captured most of the national coverage and stuff. Mm-hmm. It was definitely something fun for Deshaun Jackson.
0: Like I said, we're ripping the Band-Aid off if you're a Giants fan hearing about it. But it's also... I mean, you're right. Going back to your previous statement about... The impact that it had on the team, you can't necessarily point to this miracle at the Meadowlands leading directly to the Giants becoming a winning organization. I mean, at this point, they were already a winning yeah. organization. It was maybe just the impetus that they needed to you know, make a run that we'll discuss on a future episode. I think the next episode... Uh, just so yeah. happened to be before the 2011 season where the Giants would make a run as well. For me personally as a Giants fan, this is where, and like 2008 we had mentioned before, this is where the rivalry with the Eagles comes in because the Eagles under Andy Reid obviously were always a formidable opponent. You get the years with Donovan McNabb, that's what I remember, and then McNabb turned to Kevin Cobb for a bit, and then Kevin yeah. Cobb and Micah Vick. You remember those clashes with the Eagles very specifically, especially in this era.
1: I always wonder why it was so special between both teams. There's always good rivalries in the NFC East, but there's Mm -hmm. something special about the Giants and the Eagles. And like when we recorded the moving to the Meadowlands and we talked about how Giants Stadium was actually, and MetLife now are actually in East Rutherford in New Jersey, you look into it and it's if you're not familiar with the area, you don't notice it at first glance, but essentially... Both teams are fighting over market share of New Jersey. Yeah. You know, South of Jersey is Eagle Territory and North Jersey is Giants Territory, right? Mm-hmm. People would make fun of the state of New Jersey. And I'm not one of those people because after looking into it, it seems like a pretty nice place to live. Yeah, neither but am I. Essentially, people have called Jersey a highway between Philadelphia and New York. And I feel like both teams feel... The same about that and they basically want to capture as much fandom in that state as possible
0: yeah i think obviously with the cowboys rivalry at that point it was all about i just remember like epic clashes between manning and and romo and like god bless tony romo i actually never had anything against tony romo so to speak obviously you know i, I was rooting against him but like i'm really happy for him that he's become such a successful commentator because he was basically a meme when you watched him play and <laughs> Before memes were a thing, like you could just never win the big one. I know we're kind of getting off topic, but now it got me thinking of different rivalries that the Giants had at that time.
1: Well, looking at how the NFC Least has uh, hey, you know, turned out, hey, hey. it's <laughs> only natural they reminisce of better times. Yeah. And for me personally, growing up, I guess we we could call Toronto the East Coast. Mm-hmm. You know, we sort of had that East Coast bias because a lot of those games when we were growing up were in prime time mm-hmm. and there were big franchises and it would be fun to watch because it would be November, December football in the cold and you could see it broadcasted and the fans were all outside and it was just like a great feeling. Compare that to sometimes watching, you know, and there's nothing, I have nothing against those teams, but watching like a California team like the Rams or the Chargers in prime time on the West Coast when it's still bright outside on Sunday night, it's not the same. Yeah. It's not the same as like the Sunday night games that like the Giants would host against the Cowboys or the Eagles. Right.
0: I would agree with that. There's definitely an East Coast bias in Toronto. Like obviously for those who are unaware, like we're in the same time zone as let's say New York or Philly. So it would make sense that those would be the games that we would watch. But yeah, you're right. I mean obviously the NFC East or NFC Least as you had mentioned, it just so happens to be in the biggest markets in terms of US markets, the rivalry is always great, no matter how deserving or undeserving each team is of actually being a playoff team. I mean, especially this year.
1: I know there there are historic franchises out in the West, you know, like Vegas is out there, Oakland for a very long the Raiders, of time. The Raiders, yeah, yeah. And the 49ers, you know. I can't get over watching a Sunday night or a Monday night game when it's still bright outside in the stadium. <laughs> Atmosphere, like it just doesn't add to the atmosphere. You know what I mean?
0: I would agree. I mean, like I've never lived on the West Coast, so I don't really know. And like I live in Scotland, so it's like dark at 3 p.m. So it's mostly <laughs> it's mostly dark now when I'm watching football.
1: But Sunday night and Monday night, those are games you finish your night off, man. Oh my god! Like, when you see light outside, oh, other people are having fun. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. When I'm watching those games, it's like that's the time when everything gets shut down, and I go right to bed afterwards.
0: Yeah. That's for sure. I mean, that's one thing I definitely miss about being in Scotland. Uh, you know, is not being able to catch the Monday night games or Sunday night games, unless I want to stay up to like three in the morning, which is like really only during playoffs. To be honest, I might do that. You know, Super Bowl. Or the Super Bowl. The Super Bowl you have to stay up for, but I'm sure we can discuss this again on the next podcast, but suffice it to say that, you know, the Giants and under Tom Coughlin were a very competitive bunch. Definitely primed for another Super Bowl run or or in the hopes of their fans. However... You know, they had some pretty stiff competition in the NFC East. I feel like this was kind of the last time that the NFC East was a primetime division, quote-unquote. So yeah, thanks for listening, and uh, thanks for checking out Checkdown Charlie's. As always, follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and let us know if you have any suggestions. Take it easy. Thanks for listening to the Checkdown Charlie's podcast.
1: Check us out on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, and Podbean.
0: Don't forget to follow us at CheckDCharlies on Twitter and at CheckDownCharlies on Instagram.
1: Like, comment, and subscribe on all platforms, and don't forget to leave us a review.
0: Until next time, thanks for tuning in.